Let's pray and then let's read about, about Hannah. Lord, I, I thank you for the significance and the powerful, powerful story that motherhood tells. Lord, I am so grateful that you redirected me to appreciate um, just the incredible significance of a mother and what that means in your economy and in your story. Thank you that we, are, we get to look at this woman, Hannah, today and we get to thank you for your candid portrayal of her. And thank you for all the things that we get to learn. Lord, I pray for our, our moms here that they would be that they would join with the women of Israel, knowing that they're part of a bigger story. Um, I pray that you'd help me to point that out. And for all of us, we can all learn something from, from this mother. Lord, I pray that you would just pierce our own hearts and that you'd speak to us. Lord, I also ask that you would help me. I am, uh, Lord, flawed yet genuinely loving you. So, Lord, I, I ask that you would use me now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is 1 Samuel um, 1, and I'm going to read 4 through 11. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice... He would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, his other wife, for those of you that are just joining us in the narrative, Elkanah has two wives. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, that would be Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival, her rival provoked her until she wept and she couldn't even eat. This is verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up and now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord and she made a vow. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now let's jump over to chapter two. Let's read Hannah's song. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren 
has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings to death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, what, a, what a ride. When we meet Hannah, she is in a very miserable spot. The snapshot that God gives us of this incredible woman is one of, of abject brokenness, hopelessness, and loss. We've just started going through the book of 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings, and it was um, so slick of God to put us in this passage for, for Mother's Day. This is the story of how God, in one shot, brought the life of Hannah's dead womb, brought life into Hannah's dead womb, and simultaneously brought life into a dead nation. That's what this story is about. These are parallel stories. Hannah represents, Hannah and her dead womb represent the nation of Israel and their lost, um, very critical state that they're in right now. They're in a very, 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 very dark state, to say the least, a hopeless place. And Hannah becomes the mother of the prophet Samuel, the man who would, God would use to take Israel from the brink of extinction due to its corrupt leadership, its rampant idolatry, its unfaithfulness to God, chronic backsliding. If you read the book of Judges, you'll just see a chronic, uh, vicious cycle of turning away from God to worship other idols and worship, or to worship God, or other gods, rather. And, uh, but God uses Samuel to bring them back to the place of God's blessing. By the end, by the end of this book, First and Second Samuel, the worship of Yahweh will be reinstated again and a God-fearing king will be on the throne and the nations that are um, rivals to Israel will be paying homage to this God. It's just an incredible turnaround and we see that in, my, in a microcosm in Hannah and what I just read. If you notice, it started out in a very miserable place and by the end, she was singing this incredible triumphant song. But as the saying goes, uh, Sam, we're talking, you know, her son Samuel, as the saying goes, behind every great person is a great woman. It's true. And in this case, a, a great mother. Hannah was a great mother. So I can think of three things that we can learn today from, um, from Hannah, from this mother. Great mothers give their broken dreams to God. Before greatness comes great pain. We're going to learn that. Um, that lesson of motherhood. Before resurrection, come, there's, there's death. Great mothers don't, don't put their hope in their children, but in God. That's our second point. And thirdly, great mothers are brave enough to give their children to God for his purposes. How did that work? We're gonna see a transformation in, in Hannah's heart that's critical for all of us, whether you're a mom or not. Um, 
because we can all relate to the heart, the state of heart of, of Hannah. Um, when we meet Hannah, like the nation she represents, we meet a very miserable person. Um, the text says that over and over and over again and gives this picture of her. For example, verse 10 says that she was in, quote, great distress. Um, this is describing the inner pain, the inward emotional pain and distress of Hannah. She's in a tremendous amount of interior pain when we meet her. Um, and it says that she wept bitterly, which in the Hebrew is a word that literally means to convulse with spasms in the diaphragm. So it, it can mean to wail out loud. So this is not the picture of a woman who is just kind of quietly dabbing her eyes. She is in agony to the point where her body is kicking in and, and convulsing in pain. That's what's going on. So um, verse 6, by the way, tells us that her rival... Um, Panina, Elkanah's other wife, would deride her condition, her childless condition, to point out that it would irritate Hannah. This is the Bible's constant um, showing of any polygamous relationship. The Bible reports polygamous marriages and relationships, but never ever in a positive light. You can just imagine the drama going on here. He loves, he loves Hannah, Elkanah. He loves Hannah which would make Penina extremely jealous. Penina can have children, so to put Hannah in her place, she constantly derides and reminds her that he may love you more, but I, I have the kids. And how, the pain in that, you can just imagine the dysfunction going on in that, in that family. So uh, the word irritate, I looked that up in the Hebrew, and it's a word that means to roar, literally to roar with anger and grief. That's what it means. To roar. So when we meet Hannah, we're not meeting a woman that has an inner peace. We're not seeing someone who is, that who is prevailing in the midst of agony. We're not seeing someone who's rising above her circumstances at this time. We're meeting her at a snapshot in her life where she is a broken, miserable, inwardly tormented person. And for some understandable reasons. Why is she so hurt and she, why is she so grieved? Why is she so lost and inwardly adrift? Well, she's suffering from the death of a dream. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, you, it's something that you've wanted your entire life and you come to realize it's just not going to happen. Um, she's childless. She's childless. She's a, someone who wants desperately to be a mother and yet cannot, cannot do it. Um, and we can understand that to a certain extent, but, um, but also not. We need to know the kind of weight that that statement held Hannah being childless in the ancient world, much different than the world that we, it's painful in our world, absolutely, but much different in the ancient world. Remember, Hannah's name means, um, it means um, blessed. It means um, favored. That's what it means. So we've got a favored woman who is barren, a very uh, interesting place for anybody to be. Um, first of all, in the ancient world, your family's economic status and wealth was, was directly related to how many children you have. Please try to, they had a very, very different economic situation than we have today. Um, the, job, the job that you had did not, like, it did not carry as much weight um, as how many kids you had. You could have a great job, but if you didn't have very many children, you would be considered poor and you would be considered socially 
um, cursed. This is not even remotely the same as what we have here today. Everything was, everything, the reason is, is because everything was done through families. Um, you know, if Jameson had a job, it would be the Jameson, Jameson's entire family would go about doing that job. So the more kids Jameson had, the, the better, the more efficient, the more he could do that job and the quicker he could do it. That's what it all meant. The more kids you had, the more you could do and the more money you would make. Simple as that. The fewer kids you had, the less you could do, the less money you, you would make. It just really was that simple. So how many children you had was directly uh, connected to your economic status and your economic well-being. Also, um, there was no such thing as Social Security. There was no such thing as retirement. So um, having children was your key to your future security. Your kids would take care of you when you were old. They would make sure that you got fed. They would provide for you when you got old. That was the uh, retirement system. So the more kids you had, the more secure you felt in your future. Um, and even more than that, having kids literally in that society came down to survival. If your tribe or your nation had a lower birth rate than the tribes or nations around you, it was a serious threat People with more children had bigger armies. They would invade. At best case, they would colonize you. At worst case, they would kill you. So I'm not making this up. I'm not being extreme. The cultural situation then was having children was a life and death situation. It really was. So in an environment like this, can you imagine the enormous pressure that was on women to have kids? Enormous, enormous cultural pressure to have children for women. The woman who had the most children was literally considered a hero in society. It was tied to national heroism, the more kids that you would have. Because the more, they were, as the Bible would call them, they were quivers, in your, they were arrows in your quiver. The more your family could do, the more the nation could do the more protection you felt, all of those things, the more security you had. So women with lots of kids were considered favored, like Hannah, favored one. They were considered favored by God in that culture and heroes, and those that had fewer or no children were considered cursed or looked on like something was wrong with them, like God was punishing them, or that something, maybe you're in sin or something along those lines. So when women today are grieved and sad because they can have no children, you, you know, that's no, no way do I want to minimize that. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a, it's, a, it's a very painful thing. But we're not talking about the same kind of thing in this passage. Imagine the cultural pressure on top of the emotional pain you would feel. Imagine the cultural pressure that you would, that you would have. For them, having children was life and death. And because of that, a woman who couldn't have children was considered um, dead weight, worthless. So for Hannah, this wasn't just a personal dream of hers. That's how we, we from the West, we read this passage. We go, oh, she had a personal dream and she's suffering the death of that. Well, yes, that is part of it, but it was much, much, much bigger than that. It was the hope of her entire family, the hope of her future security, and for her, as we're going to see, it was the hope of her nation. It was the hope of, the, of national security. It was a matter of national security. 
She wanted to have children because she understood that her tribe and her nation depended on women in that society having kids. And in some ways, especially for Israel, the health of the nation, as we talked about last week, was tied to children because of the the promise given to their forefather Abraham. His direct promise to become a nation that would bless the world was completely dependent on him having children. His wife was also barren. And even before that, there's a cosmic issue here that we'll get into a little later, but even before that, the first promise given to Adam and Eve was that one day one of, one of Eve's children would crush the head of the serpent. All evil would be destroyed and the curse would somehow be reversed by a mom's child. So you can see how important motherhood was to this nation. So, um, Think of the pressure on Hannah in a society like this. Think of that. We think, you know, we think to ourselves in a certain way, well, aren't we so glad that we don't live in a society like that today? Well, yes, but we pressure women in society today for other things. You know, today you've got to be sexy and hot and attractive and you have, you know, you have kids, but you have to look like you've had none. And, you know, we have all sorts of other kind of pressures on women today. So I don't want to minimize that. Just different kinds. <laughs> in that society, it was much different. But in this society, her identity, her very identity and sense of self-worth was completely wrapped up in the idea of being a mother. That is not the case today. Societally, when it comes to our culture in, our, in, the, in the West. So here she is. Her identity, her sense of self-worth are completely, there is, in her mind, they're as dead as her womb. No wonder she's miserable. No wonder she's crying. No wonder she's roaring inside. No wonder she is in absolute misery. No wonder with both internal and external pressure, her soul was contorted. And to make matters worse, she's even being taunted by a rival, like I said, in a polygamous marriage. Think of that. On top of that, she's in a dysfunctional, horrible situation. I mean, think about it. no safe place for her. Even her home is filled with rivalry, bitterness, drama, Can you imagine walking through and seeing the husband you love with his other wife looking at their children together and talking about how precious their kids are? That would be a horrible place to grow up or or to to be in a a marriage. Elkanah loves her more, which makes Penina jealous, which makes her taunt Hannah by rubbing her nose in her infirmity. It's just endless and horrible. So how did she get out of it? How did she get out of it? Well, there, there was a, an internal turn that I think all of us can learn from this incredible mother. She triumphed over this, but in a way that um, is so remarkable and that applies to us all. She gave her dream to God. Look at verse 9. It said, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood, stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorstep of the Lord's temple, And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She's convulsing, she's wailing out loud. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me 
and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Number one, Hannah brought her broken dreams to God. On the one hand, Hannah did not pretend um, that she didn't have any brokenness. She didn't stuff her feelings down or bottle it up or try to have a stiff upper lip or just get through. She didn't do that. But on the other hand, she didn't try to make up for it by, um, uh, you know, like Hagar and try to fulfill the promise herself. She didn't try to be more, um, you know, come up with her own fleshly way of making this happen. First, um, she, instead, she brings, she brings her feelings and her desires to bear before God. Some really amazing things that we can learn from that. First, she addresses God as Lord Almighty or Lord of hosts. The Hebrew is Yahweh Sabah. And it refers to God who leads, leads the armies of heaven. She's referring to a God that fights for justice and what is right. You know what she's doing here? She's taking her burdens and she's taking her situation and she's comparing them in prayer to the character of God. That's what she's doing. She's remembering that God is all-powerful. She's remembering that he's mighty. She's remembering that he's a just God. She's remembering that he um, is transcendent. She's remembering all of those things and she's holding up. She's, she, in other words, she's thinking really well in prayer. She's holding up God's character. This is... Um, Classic uh, Hebrew ancient meditation stuff. Who is God compared to where I'm at? Do my circumstances define who he is? And also she's remembering that he is a God of compassion. She's, look, she says, she says, remember your servant. So she's, re- she's bringing up in her memory and her, in her mind that God is both all-powerful and he's both all-merciful. He's got all power and he's forever tender. He's not so big that he wouldn't forget to see her misery and her affliction. She's reminding herself of who God is. She's comparing, this is um, incredible spiritual warfare stuff going on in her mind that, that talks that with good thinking. Um, if we remember the first page of the Bible, what is God doing? There's chaos. It's, uh, this is Genesis chapter 1. It's formless. It's void right? And from the, from the second verse, we see God act. God comes in. He moves. We see the Spirit of God hovering over this chaotic situation, and God moves in. The first three days, he brings form to the formlessness. The next three days, he brings inhabitation to what was previously in, uninhabited. He's, from the first page, he's moving in to redeem, to bring hope, Hannah would have been very familiar with this character of God. From the, this is the first impression we have of God in the Bible. God is not shrieking away from the problems. He's moving in from the very first page. Um, he creates mankind to do what? Mankind on the sixth day, followed by the seventh day, Sabbath rest. He creates mankind to enjoy Sabbath worship rest with God. That is what we're for. And to center on each other. To image God throughout all the world, as we've, we've talked about. I think we talked about that last week. Right? That's what, he's, that's what he's done. But we blow it, don't we? Chapter 3. Eve decides 
what's good, right, true, and beautiful. She says, God, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna take what you say is good and, and bad. I'm gonna decide what's good and bad. And the fall happens, death starts to take hold, and what does God do? He moves in. God's walking toward them. Where are you in the garden? He knew, he knew what happened. Is God avoiding them? Is he passive aggressive? Is he mad at them? Is he giving them the silent treatment? Does he flee the scene? No, God moves in. It's humans that hide, but God moves in. And this is a pattern that I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is a pattern on repeat through the Bible. Hannah is remembering this in prayer. Okay, God is moving in. I don't know what he's doing, but I can go to him. He's all-powerful, he's transcendent, and he looks upon misery and he moves in to make something beautiful out of it. So God, look upon your servant. Um, how you think about God um, really will be seen in how you pray to God. Or if, if you pray to God. A lot of Christians have problems praying to God, believe it or not. I'm, I'm in the, obviously in the business of ministering to Christians, and you'd be amazed about how many Christians that I minister to that have a real problem with prayer. And a lot of times, and me included, uh, I have my own issues with prayer, and a lot of times that leads back to some way of God that I'm thinking wrongly about him. There's a lot of shame. Most people, uh, Christians that don't think they're adding up, or don't think that they've met some kind of standard, are hiding. They're assuming that God doesn't want anything to do with them, that he doesn't want to move in. And here's what we need to, so what do we do in that situation? We, do we ignore those thoughts on the one hand? Do we just stuff it and do what we're supposed to do? No. And on the other hand, do we believe those things and just uh, give them a blank check? No. We acknowledge what they, this is what Hannah did. She acknowledged her pain. She got up. Remember, she's in misery. She's with her husband. She, she takes action. She gets up and she goes into the presence of God. That's the idea of going into the temple or the tabernacle in those days. She goes into the presence of God and she's real with God. She's honest with him. And she, in prayer, she thinks well. She uses her mind to bring up what she knows about God objectively. He's all-powerful. He's, he's omniscient. He's, uh, he's, and he's also tender. He moves in. So I can now approach God and say, here I am. There's this impossible situation. Look at me. I know you see me because I know who you are. I know what kind of God you are. So I know you see me. Look upon your servant. Her prayer is founded on a, on a good theological foundation. And that's, I'm trying to get very practical for all of us here. When you feel shame in your heart or you feel that God wants nothing to do with you, don't be afraid of those feelings. Pause and acknowledge them. Almost like acknowledging a person that walked into the room. Hello, shame. I see you here. I'm acknowledging that you're here right now. We tend to just want to get away from those negative feelings. I would say, face them, acknowledge them, and think really well. Pause and think. What do you know about God from the very beginning, page one? Is he hiding from you? Is he running from you? I know you feel that, but wait a second. 
He's revealed himself to you. He's revealed his character to you in his word. That's what Christians believe. We believe the Bible is a revelation of the heartbeat, the character, the person of God. So I know you feel this way, but is he running from you? No, what we see, not just once or twice or three times, but we see, not, we see chronic failure in, in, the, in humans in the Bible. We see chronic love and pursuit by God in the Bible. He pursues. He comes after over and over and over and over and over again. It's the number one, what, what's the number one quoted verse about God's character in the Old Testament? Anybody know? What'd you say? Yeah. Um, it's Exodus 33. Excuse me, Exodus 34. Um, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is the most repeated character statement of God in the entire Bible. Look what it says. And let me give you the context of this. This is Exodus 34. This is what he said. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. It means you can make him angry, but you got to work at it. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Who's he talking about there? Who's he forgiving? No, no, no. What's the context of this passage? Exodus. Who is it? It's, this is Israel. After they just did what? Golden, the golden calf incident. That's the context of this. He's saying, the Lord passed before him and said, the Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin for golden calf worshipers. That's uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. You see, that's the pattern. He rescues them out of Egypt. He parts the seas literally and gets them out. He brings them to this mountain and he says this beautiful loving thing at the foot of the mountain. I love you. I've rescued you from like on eagle's wings. I'm gonna take care of you. You're gonna be my special people. It's this really romantic, beautiful language. Will you covenant with me? And the people of Israel at the foot of, of Mount Sinai, they say yes, or I do. A lot of scholars say it's like a wedding. I do. And a few chapters later, they're worshiping an idol. They're, have, they're committing, in God's, God's words, not mine, adultery. We sang this song, you're faithful to the end, you will come and marry me. It comes from this biblical metaphor that we are the bride of God, we're the bride of Christ, and we are chronic adulterers, and he is chronically faithful. Hannah's song, later in chapter two, she says, no one is holy like our God. Do you know what the word holy means? It does mean set apart, but there's another word. To, to, set apart is tricky. It's, you're right. But set apart makes it sound like there's the icky people over there and I'm set apart from ickiness. The word actually means, more accurately, dedicated. I am dedicated to you. 
That's what holy means. So when God says, be, be holy as I am holy, he's saying, be as dedicated to me as I'm dedicated to you. Or because I'm so dedicated to you, be dedicated back to me. It's a love relationship. It's an I do. It's a I'm going to be faithful to you, you be faithful to me type of a thing. And yet, and here they are, they, they worship a golden calf. It grieves God's heart. And, if, and that's the context that God reveals his character. In that icky context, he says, you want to know who I am, Moses? I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving the iniquity of thousands, and yet by no means letting people that persist in their sin get away with it. If you keep reading, he says that. That's the character of God. And that's repeated throughout the Old Testament over and over again. In other words, you see on repeat, God is in pursuit. Hannah knew that. And you can know that. When you feel ashamed or separated from God, you are not. You're the one hiding, not him. He has not changed. He is coming after you. He's pursuing you. It's so hard for us in our culture because we've become, um, we've really switched from a, uh, we've become a psychological culture. In other words, we use our insides to define who we are. How I feel is who I am. This is my identity. And the, the, the reality is how we feel, our feelings are like friends that don't always tell the truth. That's what I like to say it. We listen to our anger, hello anger, but we're a little suspect. You know, you have a good friend that just wants to vent to you, but you're such good friends that you know they don't really mean half of what they're saying. You know what I mean? They just need to get it out. They just need to get, that, get it out and vent. And you're a good enough friend to go, I know what you really mean. If, if a less friend was witnessing this, they might not know what you mean, and they might take you out of context and get really freaked out. But good friends... They, they know what you, what you mean and you just need to vent. That's the idea uh, with our emotions. We need to take ourselves that way. Okay, yeah, I'm mad, I'm upset, but what's the objective truth? God is for me. He's coming after me. He said he would never, ever, 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 ever leave me and never forsake me. He said that when I am faithless, he is faithful still. He said he's absolutely committed to my well-being and committed to me. That's what Hannah is doing here. She is bringing this burden of hers and her dreams and her identity and she's comparing it to the truth of who, of who God is. She believes God hears her. She's meditating on this. She's remembering this. Um, let me put it this way, because rem- I think this is a good sentence. She re- she's remembering who God is and she's taking the deepest needs of her heart and pouring them into the reality of who God is. She's taking the deepest needs of her heart and she's pouring them in to the reality of who God is. Our, our culture will tell us to vent and live out our emotions of ex- as expressions of our most authentic selves. That's what our culture will say. Vent and live out your emotions. What's on the inside comes out and everyone needs to recognize that or they're suppressing and opp- or oppressing you. On the other hand, other cultures will tell you to stuff your emotions for the sake of your clan or your tribe or your family or your nation. And here the Bible comes along and says, neither. 
neither of those things. Don't give them a blank check on the one hand, but don't stuff them and bottle them up either. Bring them and pour them out in the presence of God through meditative prayer based on the truth of who he is. That's what we do, and that's spiritual warfare. And that's what Hannah does. So look what happens. A change comes in. She, her heart radically transforms. Here is the tipping point for Hannah. There was, we're about to read, there was Hannah before this verse, and then there's the Hannah after this verse. Something happened in prayer that was transformative. Look what she says. She says, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant, your servant's misery, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord. Look at this. I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be on his head. Let me read it again, because I want to tell you what this verse is not. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. This is not a bargain or manipulation. This is absolute surrender to Yahweh, who is infinitely more powerful and infinitely more merciful. She, in other words, she's not saying, if you fulfill my desires and make me whole, well, then I'll give something back for you. I know it sounds like that's what she's saying, but let me explain that's not what's going on here. This is actually a blank check to God of absolute surrender. What she's saying is, I'm so surrendered to you that if you give me a son, I will not use him to fulfill myself. I will go the rest of my, I will give him back to you. I will be childless the rest of my life. That's what she's saying. If you give me a son, I'm not going to use him to make myself feel better about myself and about my identity and make myself feel like a functioning member of society. I'm not going to use him to bring money in and economic security for my family because he won't. I'm going to give him to the Lord all the days of his life. He will not bring money home for this family, which is what children were for. I'm not going to use him for security. I'm not going to use him for future security to make myself feel better for the future because he won't be around. He'll be working for God, I release him from that cultural obligation to make me feel secure in my old age. Do you see what she's saying? She's not, she's saying, even if you fulfill this in me, in other words, she's saying, I used to want a son for me, but now I want a son for you. That's a very different Hannah than what we read in the beginning. Something changed. She was able to redirect her desire from a place of idolatry to a place of worship. That's what is so remarkable about the motherhood of Hannah. She had a good desire that was an ultimate desire that became an idolatrous desire. If I can just have a son, then I'll be, I'll be a human again. I'll be valid. I'll have a place in society. I'll be, a, I'll be a patriot. I'll, be, I'll contribute to society. I'll be a better, I'll be more, uh, a, a more um, I'll be more beneficial to my husband and to my family. She gave all that up. This is not a, a swap. This is, even if you do it, God, I'm giving him completely to you. I will be childless, even though I have a child. What sacrifice, what worship, what honor Something changed in her. 
Am I just reading into this? Well, let me not get ahead of myself. First of all, let me tell you what a Nazarite is. That's what she means. Um, she's saying he will be, when she says no razor will touch his head, she's talking about a Nazarite vow. And, uh, you can read about it in Numbers chapter 16. And basically, if you wanted to be a minister for God full time, you had to be a Levite. You had to be from a certain clan, a certain family. And based on that family within the Levite clan, you had different jobs working. That's how they divided you up. It didn't matter what you felt like you wanted to do. <laughs> you know, it, you had to be born right. You had to be born in the right order. That's how they figured it out. So if you were born, um, you know, if you were born to uh, the tribe of Manasseh, and you're like, man, I really want to, I really want to work for God. The only way you could do that as a non-Levite was to take the vow of a Nazarite. God made, he had an app for that. He made a provision for that. If you're dedicated to me, and what it means is you, you are um, completely full-time dedicating your life as like a lay priest, like a lay pastor, which is what we're going to see Samuel do. He's going to stick around the tabernacle, and he's going to shadow Eli, and he's going to become basically a lay priest under Eli and his two sons. But a Nazarite child is of no help to the, econ to the economy of the family. He makes no contribution. A Nazarite child would not be able to take care, he would not be able to take care of Hannah in her old age. And he would not be able to even give Hannah emotional support because he wouldn't be there. She wasn't, she wasn't even going to raise him. There's no email. There's no texting. There's no, I mean, you know, he's gone. He's not there. As soon as he was weaned, she took him, and that was, she would visit him once a year. But that, I mean, can you imagine that? She gave him up. What a sacrifice. Then, why did she still even want to have a child is the question that came to me. If you're going to give him up, why have a child? And here's what's, here's what's super important for us as we continue in Samuel. For an Israelite woman, there was cultural reasons to have a child that we talked about. There were emotional reasons to have a child that we identify with here in the West. Um, but for the Israelite woman, there's also big theological reasons to have a child. Very, very big theological reasons, which we already mentioned. When God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to save the world through your family. That's, that's my own <laughs> paraphrase, but that's basically what he said to Abraham. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to bring healing to the world through your family. Someday, through your descendants, I'm going to heal the earth from the curse. I'm going to make all wrong things right through your children. Now, the Israelites didn't know exactly what that meant. They didn't. They didn't know exactly what that meant. But all they knew that was someday God was going to do something through their community. It made them very special. They were going to do, God was going to do something. They had a, God had a plan for them. Um, but you know what it, what it did mean? What they, they didn't know exactly what it meant, but what it did mean was that all Israelite women, all Israelite women knew that when they bore a child, they were somehow participating in God's salvation plan for the entire world. Think of that. Somehow they were participating in God's plan of salvation for the entire world. It reminds me of Martin, what Martin Luther King said. He said, our children are ambassadors to a future that we will never see. 
There's a purpose. There's a purpose. Now can you hear what Hannah was saying? Now can you hear what Hannah was saying? When Hannah is saying, God, I, I, I used to want to have a son for me, but now I want to have a son for you. I want to give him back to you. Do you see what she's done? She's, she has shifted her self-image and her identity. She shifted the center of her life away from having children um, to being a part of God's mission and God's plan in healing the world. She's fulfilling Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, where we are to go and have dominion over the earth and bring all the earth under the rule of God to, to um, multiply, right? That's the, they call it, the, uh, scholars call it the cultural mandate found in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Multiply upon the earth. It was, it was repeated and given to Noah. Remember when the waters subsided and Noah came out of the ark and he built an altar to Yahweh? Remember that? And the aroma was sweet smelling. But what did God say to Noah who was the new Adam? He said almost, almost a copy paste. Multiply over all the earth. The idea is raise a God-honoring generation that will bring all of the earth into the Sabbath day worship of Yahweh. That's what it's about. And Hannah finally shifted. She said, okay, this child is not for me in my fulfillment anymore. It's not to make me feel good or to give me a place in society. It's to help in this mission of bringing healing to the world. Now, is this, am I reading too much into this? I don't think so. If you, if you were to, I didn't put it on the, on the screen because there was just a lot of text, but if you were to read down chapter one to verse 18, you would see this. Look, listen to this. And she said, as she's speaking to Eli, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. It keeps going. They arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, they had sex, and the Lord remembered her. Now did you hear, did you hear the order there? It did not say that she prayed, got pregnant, and then was happy. It did not say that. It said she prayed, she was happy, and then got pregnant. Look at the order. It's not that her being pregnant made her fulfilled. She came into peace and contentment before that. In fact, if you keep reading it, it says, eventually, God gave her a, a kid. But he didn't promise her in that time of prayer. It was silent to her. He didn't say, you're going to have a son. Name him Samuel. Like other people that we read later on in the Bible to Mary, right? She just trusted God with it. Whatever the, income, whatever the outcome was, she, there was a shift in her soul. She turned a desire that, was, that became idolatrous, that was making her miserable and contorting her and twisting her. She turned it and she offered it to God as an act of worship and it made her right. It straightened her out. It gave her peace and contentment. She went home to the same contentious household. She went home to the same rival the same problems, 
We like to think that she went to prayer and she just, oh, my problems are solved. No, she went in peace in the midst of the same problem. She went back to the same world. Just like when we leave here today, the same stuff is there. The same dynamics are in your family. She moved from an external, if only my external circumstances were different, then I would be okay. She switched to, no, I'm okay because of God, because of Yahweh, no matter what externally happens to me. Because my heart's right. Man, there's a lot we can learn from that. She found contentment before God answered her prayer. That can only happen if she if there was an internal shift. By shifting our hope to the mission of God, this applies not just to children, this applies to anything. Listen, by shifting your hope to the mission of God, then money, money, what is money then? Money becomes a means to an end, not the end in and of itself. Right? When we shift our hope, Without shifting our hope, money becomes an end in and of itself, and it will contort us and twist us and warp us and hurt us. But when it's a means to accomplish God's mission and his healing, to release God's resources into society, to, make, to release his rule and his reign and his healing power, then it becomes a means to get that done. It becomes a selfless thing, to build up community, to build up society, to help where other things can't help to answer our own prayers in, us, in some ways. Career becomes a means to an end, not the end of itself. Marriage and family become a means to an end, not the end of itself. Did you know that I'm, I, I'm about to officiate a wedding in a few weeks? It's so hard in our culture to, uh, preparing people for marriage because our culture is constantly telling us that marriage, well, that life is about personal fulfillment. Life is about what making your happiness. And so therefore, if your marriage does not make you happy, people feel gypped, they feel oppressed, they feel wronged, they feel uh, suffocated, they feel like part of their humanity is being cut off, and it's a lie. That's wait, what, what does that do? It makes weak people, if I can just be frank, because it waits for the external circumstances to be made right before I can have peace. The Bible offers a much more robust idea. That marriage is, your marriage has a societal purpose. Your family is huge. It's the, as some philosophers have said, your family, your children, your marriage is the fabric of society and boy is it is it under attack most uh, enlightenment thinkers were outright against the family and thought of it as oppressive did you know that especially uh, the romantics like uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley and uh, William Blake um, Wordsworth, all of these guys in the Romantic period, they, they said, no, your, um, the authentic self is where you find fulfillment, and therefore any institution, whether it's government or a family that represses your authentic self, especially in the area of sex, is oppressing who you, who you, should, who you really are, and we should, get, we should get away from those types of things. Outright. This is not hinted at. Outright. How many of those guys committed suicide? I don't know. 
I'm not sure. Did Blake, William Blake, commit suicide? Well, yeah, he was troubled, I'm sure. But, you know, uh, you know um, one of them wrote this, and I can't remember which one, but they wrote this incredible idea of a, of a, of a garden where there's freedom. They believe that nature is where you found your fulfillment. If we could, in fact, they would say, leave the cities. Get out of the city because civilization is holding everybody back. Go out into nature and, that, and you will find there is a universal human nature that will be reinvigorated by being out in nature. And that's where we find, your, they believed in a universal truth that every human being had. That was dismantled later. That part, it was dismantled even further. But the romantics thought if we get away from anything inhibiting us, including marriage, if you are dispositioned to have many partners, then stopping you from that is stopping you from your natural, authentic self, and it's oppressing you, and it's an evil thing, and it should be broken. That started back way back when. Nietzsche came along, um, Freud came along, and made it scientific, made it analytical. You are your sexual desire, Freud said. You are who you, sex is the, is the basis of who you are, even back to being an infant. Therefore, repressing that, you know, we, sex used to be an act that you participated in. It was something that you did. After Freud, it became something who you were, became your identity. Think about that. Think about that. See, for us, or, or what it used to be, um, think about if, if sex is not like the hair under your arms that comes when you're around 13, right? It comes at a certain stage, but it's always been since the time you were born. What does that mean for our children? Think that through. Major, major society breaking apart, sexual revolution, the attack of the family, the education system, all from this, this idea that your identity is wrapped up in this, in this. And if you're repressed, if anyone's asking you to repress your desires that you've had since childhood, they're oppressive, including the family. And they should be, they should, they should be, they should come against that. Our, our society should come against that. Uh, someone who came after Freud a guy by the last name of Reich, he, he um, the sexual revolution, a lot of those people in the 60s were really depending on his writings. He blatantly said that um, school society should encourage 13-year-olds um, to have sex with each other because it's a part of who we are. It's their identity. It's not, no, no longer an act that you do. It's an identity. It's who you are. The Bible comes along and says, no, no, you can survive. <laughs> like, you never, never are you going to open up the obituary and read, oh, so-and-so died because they didn't have sex. You're not going to read that. In fact, uh, it, it's a, a lot of Freud's thinking has been debunked around in, in uh, higher institutions these days, but it's become a cultural idea. It's caught cultural currency that to repress your sexuality is to repress who you are. How dare anybody tell you to do that? Surrounding all of, it's surrounding so much of the cultural wars that are going on right now. 
Hannah said, no, I, can, I am fulfilled without that. She said, I, I don't need to buy into that anymore. My, her culture was saying, your identity is having children. And she was able to say, no, no. In fact, if I get to have a child, I'm going I'm to give that. I'm going to relinquish myself from the benefits of having a child. I have my fulfillment in God. She prayed. She had happiness. And then she became pregnant. Her priorities were, li- were aligned. Her priorities were lined up. Money becomes just money, a means to an end. Your marriage has incredible purpose. Incredible purpose, the the Bible would say. Hannah knew, but um, so, let let me just say this. Let me wrap this up. Nicole was like, hey, it's Mother's Day. I'm sure everyone would appreciate a shorter sermon. I went, okay. Smile and nod. Um, Let me just say this. If If God had given Hannah a child before she made this shift in her heart, what would have happened? few things, maybe. I mean, if we can guess a few things. She would have, she would have, she could have crushed the child under the weight of her, of her expectations for it. He would have become an idol. If your children are the way in which you're getting fulfilled, this is a parental, this is a, this is a thing. Parents, we know this, right? Our children quickly, easily, without us even much thinking about it, become our idols. You know, when our child misbehaves at school, we're immediately afraid of what they think, what people think our parenting is like. <laughs> you know, all of those things. That comes with the territory. When we, when we are looking to fulfill ourselves through our children, our children become, well, on the one hand, crushed under, under those expectations, or they become spoiled. Become, uh, they can become what people call a narcissistic wound. You can do no wrong. That was my issue. My, my mother thinks that I am the fourth person of the Trinity. I mean, seriously, when I was growing up, she was like, I would do something wrong at school, and she would always be like, I'm sure you had an incredible reason for doing that. And I, I had to tell her, no, Mom, I did not. I blatantly broke a rule. Like, even I knew. There was no good reason that I had for that. If, if God had given Hannah a child before she, she made this shift... She, she could have crushed the child under the weight of her expectations. It could have poisoned the family system. Either the child would be worshipped and spoiled or punished for not fulfilling some standard in some way. But because of her suffering, and this is what I want to get to, this is, where I'm, this is a great place to end it, because of her suffering and because of her sacrifice of him by sending him away, motherhood is sacrifice. It is a and fatherhood, it is a gradual, long goodbye. Because of Hannah's suffering and because of her sacrifice of him by sending him out and sending him away, through her sacrifice and suffering, we're going to read in the rest of the book that people's lives are going to be saved. Because she gave Samuel to God's purposes to center on God and his presence and to center on society, this nation is going to be resurrected just like her dead womb is resurrected. People are going to be saved because she suffered and sacrificed 
she brings a savior. And Hannah knew it. Hannah knew it. I think Hannah knew. I think you can see from her song that Hannah knew that this, her motherhood had eschatological, prophetic, salvific ramifications on the world. Let me read it to you. Then Hannah prayed and said, my, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. This is going to be the song of Israel by the end of this thing. They're going to boast over their enemies. There is no one holy. What's holy mean, guys? What is it? Dedicated. dedicated. There is no one dedicated like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly. Or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is, a God who, is the God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. In other words, he's very involved in every aspect of your life. He sees it all, and he's interested in it. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Look at this. Her world is turned upside down. Those who were strong before are now weak, and those who were weak are now strong. Those who were full uh, were full, they hire themselves out for bread, but now those that are hungry, they hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. She will actually end up bearing six, but she's saying, I'm, I have a fruitful womb now, but she who has many sons will pine away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. This is our motherhood is a resurrection story. Every mother is telling the story of resurrection. Through sacrifice, through the giving of yourself, you're sending out, your kids are not just for you. You're sending out a God-fearing generation into society. You are telling the gospel story by being a mom. He brings down the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. And has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundation of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints. But the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. It was in weakness for Hannah. It was in sacrifice. It was for, through sur total surrender of even her children. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. There was no king at that point. He will give strength to his king, and here's, a, here's an incredible word, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. The word in, the word in Hebrew is Mashiach. It's Messiah. She knew that Samuel meant more than just being Samuel. She saw the parallel. I'm convinced of it. All motherhood, let me end on this. All motherhood shows us that God brings saving life, all life, through suffering and sacrifice. Thank you, mothers, for that. All motherhood tells the story of God bringing life through sacrifice. Over and over, this is, what, what I tell you about the Bible, patterns lead to what in the Bible? Someone say meaning. Meaning. Repetition leads to meaning. Pattern leads to meaning. And over and over again, God gave a foretaste of the real gospel and the work of Jesus Christ in the fact that he brought salvation to the world through barren, rejected women. 
unwanted women. Right? Let me, it's old Sarah, not beautiful, fertile Hagar, through whom God brings the royal messianic saving seed of I, named Isaac. Right? It's through Leah, the ugly girl that nobody wanted, the wife of Jacob. He didn't want her. He was duped into having her. But it wasn't Rachel, the beautiful one that everybody wanted, that God brings the royal messianic saving seed of Judah. Repetition leads to what? Meaning. Samson is born to a barren woman who shouldn't be able to have children. Samuel, here we are, is born to a suffering, disgraced woman. But through the suffering and disgrace of Hannah, what comes? Salvation. John the Baptist is born to a barren woman. Like Samuel, to prepare the way for the new Davidic king. And the Davidic king himself is born to a disgraced teenager pregnant out of wedlock. Pattern leads to meaning in the Bible. All motherhood tells the gospel story. It does. It tells the gospel story that life comes through the sacrifice of someone else, through the weakness of someone else, through the death, the giving of someone else. Life comes. And this makes it much bigger than just being able to have biological children. Anybody can be a mom and a dad to someone of all ages. There is, for everybody in here, there is someone that you can help. You can give of yourself and look, to use, the, to use an up-down metaphor, you look down on and someone, there's someone else, no matter what age you are, that you can look up to. Several of you in here, I look up to you. I'm following you as you're following Christ. You're fathering me in a sense. And I'm doing the same to you. This is what our community does. And what, and what for? To fulfill ourselves? No, 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 no. To send us out. A God-fearing generation to multiply over the, over the face of the, of the earth. We can all learn a blessed, uh, a blessed lesson from mothers. What was the metaphor that Jesus used? Remember that? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I've longed to gather you as a father who protects his farm. No. Jesus, a man, what did he say? He said, here's how I want you to look at me. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to to gather you like a mother gathers her chicks to protect them, to die for them, which he will at the end of that week to bring life. It's beautiful. It's written into nature. It's written into our hearts. Thank you, moms, for sharing the gospel just by being you, by being a mom. And the better that we can take our idols and and make our children not our idols, but a means to an end, not the end in and of themselves, the better it'll be for them, the better it'll be for your family, the better it'll be for this world. Amen? I know the hour grows late but take a moment this is I we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to be honest 
perhaps about some good things that we've turned into ultimate things in our own lives. Some of you are, are no doubt grieving the death of a dream. And here's what I want to offer you. I want to I invite you to get up like Hannah, arise up, and pour out your inner desires in the presence of God. I want you to meditate on who God is, on his goodness, on his bigness, on his infinite glory. And I want, you, I want to invite you to give that thing or that person back. To find your fulfillment whether you get that dream or not. Whether God comes through or not. It's a big, it's a big exercise. maybe some of your children are not walking with the Lord it's just hurting you can you bring that to the altar and as you come for communion you're reminding yourself of the, of the sure love that brings you true fulfillment true peace whether anything else everything else will change and go up and down but his love remains the same.